Well, this morning, we continue our way through 1 Corinthians, and we come to chapter 6. And one of the reasons that we decided to go through 1 Corinthians, one, I, I have not preached through it, so it provided a, 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 something different. But also because 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians, Paul just deals with so many odd little issues that you really don't deal with anywhere else in the Bible. And, and uh, it's not that these things are not, the groundwork is not laid for these things anywhere else in the Bible. It's just that you don't hear them particularly brought out like, like they are here. I mean, the Corinthian church gave Paul so many opportunities to, to uh, exhort, chastise, and direct. Um, and so he writes them. Again, we're probably looking at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians here. He, as far as we can discern, he wrote four of them. Uh, we have letters two and four, and so 1 Corinthians is probably actually number two, 2 Corinthians. Um, and Paul is Paul is away, and he's getting a report that things are not going well and that there's some trouble there, and so he's writing back this long letter of, of, uh, of chastisement, really, uh, and also encouragement, because it, it is encouraging. You remember the way he began. There's not many of you wise, not many of you noble, not many of you, but... You know, powerful, but the Lord has chosen you. Uh, this is this. The Lord is our righteousness. The Lord is our wisdom. Uh, so he he. It's certainly not just merely a letter of chastisement, but there's plenty of chastisement in it. And so we come to our text this morning. Mark has already read it, so I will not reread it. But as you heard in Mark's reading, he begins narrowly, and then he's going to flex out to a to a broader statement. Remember the 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 passage that we have in our background is from Romans, Romans 12, 2, that very familiar passage, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed in the renewing of your mind. Paul, I believe, is bringing that verse, if you will, to bear now upon the Corinthians and upon Corinthian life, the, the, the life of the church in the city of Corinth. And yet you see so many examples of their thinking according to the pattern of the world. And this is one of them. The very particular issue here that Paul now turns to address is the issue of lawsuits against the brethren. So apparently within the church, we have brother, sister, most likely brother, suing brother and taking their issue to the, to the courts to have these things resolved. Even maybe it's even a little, you know, more down low and dirty because there's cheating involved here it's it's not merely just hey we have we have something we can't reconcile with and that and that's enough that paul would chastise them but apparently there's other things going on here as well you you cheat each other you yourselves do the wrong this is in verse eight no you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren so it's not just that we're bringing issues to the court we're bringing issues to the court in ways that are also cheating our brother. They're, they're using the power of the state uh, and the, the judicial system there in Corinth uh, to, to cheat and take from the brother. Or you're cheating me, and so I, I have no recourse, but I have to take you to court. Maybe you have some of that uh, going on. But either way, we have dissension within the body. The body, the, the, the Christians in Corinth are thinking like pagans. And in a, in a pagan society, what recourse do we have? Either I have to resort to physical violence, I have to go solve my own problems, I have to bring retributive justice, I have to do it. 
Or I got to take you to the, the, the ones that, that bear the power of the sword because maybe I'm too weak to do it or I don't want to deal with the consequences of having to do it. So I go to the, the, the one who has the power of the sword, the state, and, and get them to enforce this kind of justice. Now, I, now, this is interesting to us as Americans because it's like, well, yeah, what else would you do? <laughs> like, In some sense, we can identify with the Corinthians here. Paul reprimands them for going to the courts to settle their disputes. And again, here we have to be very careful that we don't merely look at the Bible and just study it as sort of this thing in a little bit of a vacuum here. But, you know, but we have to apply it to ourselves. Like, what else would you do? If there's a legal dispute and we're not going to come to agreement, what do you do? we got to go to the courts to settle it. You lawyer up, I'll lawyer up, and then we'll go... Let the courts settle this. What else is there? And I think Paul would say to us, brothers and sisters, I'm urging you, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. This is how pagans think. But it just shows how, how, how much the, the, the thinking, the options of the world become our options. So that's the issue that we're dealing with here particularly. Brothers, so and this is just one more example of a Corinthian cancer, if you will, kind of manifesting itself in the life of the church. We've already seen other issues, some issues of sexual immorality. He's going to come back to that, and he's really going to hunker down on that in the next uh, text that we have to deal with. We've seen some of that. But here now, we see it manifesting itself in lawsuits against the brethren. Well, what is Paul's response? If we're not to be conformed to the pattern of the world, that is, in this case, take our lawsuits to the civil courts, well, Paul, what are we supposed to do? And here Paul is shocked that he has to say it. In fact, in this case, he says, I write this to your shame. Now, you might, you might remember earlier in 1 Corinthians, I think it was in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, I'm not writing this to shame you. I do not want to shame you here. I'm just trying to delay. I'm trying to tell you what's true. I'm not writing this to shame you. I'm not writing this to one-up you. In this case, he's like, no, now, now I am writing this to shame you. Shame on you that I have to tell you this. Dare any of you having a matter against one another go to law before the unrighteous? and not before the saints. Do you not know, he says. And here, here's the, we've heard this line already many times in 1 Corinthians. Do you not know? And here Paul is pressing us to live out the things we know. How do we live consistently with the theology we have? That's the question we have to reckon with. Don't you know? Now, there's two ways to answer that. No, I didn't know that. Okay, then we're going to learn. Or yes, I did, and I just haven't been living consistently. And that's why, again, I think Paul in, in that Romans 12 passage says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And what pattern is he talking about? In the next phrase, he helps you, but be transformed where? In the renewing of your mind. Harry Blaymeyers wrote a book. I don't know when, it, when he wrote it. I feel like it was in the 60s, but maybe it was later. But anyway, it was called The Christian Mind. And in that book, he uses a, uh, he kind of coins a phrase. He says, we need to learn to think Christianly. We got to learn to think Christianly. 
Wait, we've got to we've got to think how what it looks like to navigate the course of this world as a Christian. And that's what Paul is challenging. Don't you know this? You are not thinking Christianly, you are thinking Corinthianly. You're thinking Greekly. You're thinking Romanly. You're not thinking Christianly. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What an amazing, what an amazing place to go over the fact that these brothers are suing each other. And where Paul goes is, don't you know that Christians are one day going to judge the world? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Paul's response to the fact that these guys are suing each other is one day we, as the saints of God, are going to judge the world. When God made man, when, when God made Adam, he charged him with rule. Rule the earth and subdue it. That he, he built that, if you will, right into mankind. This is part of what it means to be made in the image of God is we have his wisdom. Granted, he's capital W wisdom, and we have small w wisdom, and we have to cultivate it, and we have to develop it, and we have to try to, 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 to mature it. But he's planted it within us because we bear his image. He's the ruler. He's the judge. But he made us small j judges. He's the capital R ruler, but he made us small r rulers. He's the capital K king, but he made us the little delegated kings. We have that within us. And then man almost instantly commits cosmic treason, as Sproul says, and chucks the whole thing overboard and buys the lie of the serpent. Nonetheless, even after the fall, go back to like uh, um, uh, Genesis 9 when God comes through Noah and basically gives him the same charge. Okay, now go do it again. Except now it's going to be a lot more complicated because now we've, now our minds are muddled. It's not just that we're young and immature and growing in wisdom. Now we have all kinds of sinful things in there. It's going gonna, it's gonna to really take a lot of sorting out. But we have to do it. But we as Christians, we as Christians, it's not like we have all the wisdom in the world, but we as Christians, at least according to the Bible, have the gift, a gift, that non-believers do not have. It's called the Holy Spirit. Non-believers have a lot of small w wisdom because, again, they bear the image of God. This wisdom, I, we all go to non-believers for all kinds of things. You know, you look, you got to go see a heart doctor. It'd be nice if he's a Christian, but what you really want to know is, is he wise when it comes to cardiology? That's really what I know. Have you studied it? Have you fought through the thorns and thistles of your own sinful mind and laziness and distraction and financial problems? You like to get all through that to gain the wisdom of cardiology. That's all I want to know. Have you done the hard work to gain the wisdom of this? You hop on a plane to fly somewhere. It'd be nice if your pilot was a, was a Christian. That'd be a wonderful thing. But even more than that, you just want to know, are you wise when it comes to flying, you know, airplanes? You know, that's really what I want to know right now. And all the other things are kind of secondary. Have you done the hard work of gaining the small w wisdom of aviation so that you can get me safely from here to where I want to go? 
and that's fine. That we, we non-believers have all sorts of small w wisdom because they bear the image of God. But brothers and sisters, we have the Holy Spirit. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. We actually have the gift of capital W wisdom given to us. Now, again, we still battle with sin, so we still find ways of distorting it and twisting it and denying it and so forth. But it's a gift that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is asking for the, he's asking the application question, the inconsistency question. So why when you two brothers have a dispute with each other, both having capital W wisdom and having a body called the church, the body of Christ that's invested with the capital W wisdom, you who will one day judge the world, why can't you work this out? Why is your first instinct not to do what, and, and again, maybe it is for us, but it's worth, it's worth thinking about what this would look like in American society. Why is your first instinct not first to go to the brother, try and reconcile there? Now, maybe it is. Again, thinking through Matthew 18, as we thought about last week. Your first instinct, go to the brother, try to reconcile it. You make a friend. You know, Jesus says that, hey, better to go reconcile with the guy on the way than, than go to court. So go and you try to work it out. Okay, you can't work it out. Do we get other brothers involved? Because that's what happens in Matthew 18. Other brothers now get involved. And we seek the wisdom of our brothers and we seek their insight and their witness. And if that doesn't work, then going to the elders of the church. Wait, go with you. I know, that's really great. That's really great. But the elders of the church, are they're not specialists in land disputes. They're not specialists in corporate law. They're not specialists in that. Okay. But they have the capital W wisdom, as do we all, of God. And Paul says, why are you not going there to settle this problem? But rather, you're dragging the, the dirty laundry of a dispute between two brothers out into the pagan world for the whole world to see. And, and saying, hey, to, to, our, to our, our, our pagan uh, uh, neighbors, hey, would you solve this problem for us? Paul rebukes them. Now, for us, I think it's we just don't value the church that way. We view the church as a little niche, as one thing. With, well, I go to church for church stuff. I go to church to hear Bill preach. I go to church to, to, you know, sing. I go to the church to see my brothers and sisters. But when I need disputes settled, I go to the specialist who does that. And the specialist who does that is the judge down the street. And I get a lawyer to represent me and so forth. So in some sense, the, the breakdown of the church, even in our own society, it's like we don't trust the church to answer these disputes. Kind of gets to the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem for us as Americans, I think, is that the church, again, is just one facet of my life. It's not, it's not the institution that represents the kingdom of which I am a citizen. In, in the, you know, the, one of the verses I like, it's actually the theme verse of the, the study center that I had was 2 Corinthians 10.5, you know, taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Like every thought, like that's the, the, the vision of the kingdom of God is that all our thoughts, every sphere of life be, as Blameyer said, made to, we think through Christianly. The kingdom of God is that all authority in heaven and earth is given to Jesus Christ. 
And when, when I first started, I remember the very first lecture I gave just talking about why we would have such a study center. I said, because as Christians, we tend to view Christianity as an element of my life. Right? I'm, I'm, you know, you think about like your social media profile. You know, I'm a male. I'm a, I'm a Dodger fan. I'm a, you know, American. I'm a pastor. I'm a this. I'm a Christian. I'm a, you know, it's like, it's like Christian is one thing in the different things that I am. And it's just, that's not how Paul thinks. Paul doesn't say, oh, well, you're a Dodgers fan. You're a plumber. You're a, you know, you're, you, you're a New Yorker. You're a member of, of, you know, of this society. You're a member of, of, you know, that, that group. Uh, here's my political views. Oh, I'm a Christian. For Paul, you are a Christian and everything else comes under that. Every thought is brought into obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, it's not one little facet of what I am. It is what I am. And in that thinking, I think Paul looks and says, so why aren't you going there first? Why aren't we solving this as brothers first? Why is brother going to law against a brother? Now, here's how you know this is serious for Paul because you say, yeah, but but, but if I go to the church, the church doesn't understand land disputes and it doesn't understand corporate law and I, I, I may not get, justice may not be served. <laughs> and Paul says, better to be cheated. That's what he says in verse 7. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Imagine saying that. That's the better option to turn the other cheek, to deal with it underneath. Now, again, we're dealing with brother against brother here. We're not saying there are no issues that require civic law or there's no reason for a Christian ever to find himself or herself in a court of law in defense or pursuing something. It may very well be because outside the church, how can I bring How can I bring an unbeliever there? It's not an authority they will recognize. But it should be a world in which we live where we recognize it that somehow as Christians we work it out. We will work it out. But for Paul, but even if it means you get cheated, better that, he says. I don't know. I'm scandalized by that. It's like that's difficult to hear. But Paul is pushing us to live out the consequences of what we truly believe. Now, so the narrow instance here is that of lawsuits against one another. And we have to think about that. I remember, I remember we got, we got sued once as, a, as the school. I remember, I, this, whatever hair loss I have, and it's growing, but, but it, it, it began. It began that year. It began that year. Heart problems began that year. <laughs> hair loss began there. Maybe even my vision. Maybe it was just the fact that I was probably turning 40, but 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 also it just all collided right there. It was tremendously stressful to go through. But I remember, and, and it was it, it was, of course, we all say it was unjust, but I fully believe it was. There was just no merit to the daggum thing, and we had to go through it, and it was time-consuming and stress-inducing and so forth. But I remember thinking to myself, why is it I, regardless, even if and, and I, if it was ridiculously unjust. But I remember thinking to myself, but why is it coming to this? Let's just assume for a second that your claim is just. Why are our pastors not getting together? And I, and I, remember, I remember saying, let's bring this. Let's get pastors involved then. And let's sit together with our churches. 
some of the churches represented here. And why, why are you suing us? I mean, I can go biblically and just ask that. And it's not like, oh, let's get out of it. No, let's bring it to a different authority. Let's go to our, let's keep this thing among the church. But I, I think probably it's just, that's, it just just does not come naturally. No, they're not going to sell it. This has to go before a court of law. This takes work to think out what this actually looks like in real life. Like, how do you think through this? How do we handle disputes with our brothers? So there's the narrow thing. I think food for thought there. But now Paul is going to go through that little funnel and now out again to the broader thing. And this is going to lead us into the, the thorny text that we have to deal with in the weeks to come of sexual immorality. But Paul, again, is going to take this, what does it mean not to be conformed to the pattern of this world? And now he, he, he blows it out to a wider uh, stance in verse 9. So having dealt with the lawsuit issue and, and, and shamed them, for their behavior, he now asks them another question. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, there's no pause in Paul's thought. He's going right from lawsuits into this because the list that we're about to read, of course, has some thorny things in it itself. But don't forget that what's moving Paul into this discussion is brothers turning against brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor the covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And here we get a similar list to that of Galatians 5. Here are the works of the flesh, and such will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is upping the ante here. Like, hey, brothers, you're suing each other. You're demonstrating this malice toward one another. And he's saying, you need to hear the severity and seriousness of this. You're cheating one another. But I'm telling you right now, such behaviors will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And of course, he throws in, now he turns in this direction towards sexual sin, where he's going to go. And we see all kinds of sexual sins in here, fornication and adultery. He mentions idolatry in there, which means that he's probably referring to this, even the homosexuality, with regards to some of the temple rituals that were going on there. The fact that he throws idolatry right in the middle of that. There was the religion around Corinth and around Greece as a whole involves all kinds of things like temple prostitution and all kinds of sexual deviancy that was associated with the religion itself, with the idolatry of the place. But not just tied to that, he speaks about the individual things in and of themselves, all these sexual sins. But then he goes beyond sexual sins because, again, our eyes go right to homosexuality, and I, I get that. Within our culture, we feel this. there's an argument, there's a, there's a strain in the argument over whether or not, and even within the evangelical church, is this something God approves and accepts, or is this something that God uh, chastises? And here, the fact that something like this is in this list tells us that, yes, it's something that God chastises. But notice that he also adds coveting. If, if we make this list sort of a grand list of the, 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 big, the big boys in the, in the deeds of the flesh, he throws coveting. He throws reviling. It was just last week, or maybe the week before, Betty, we, we were talking about what reviling means. It basically means gossip. It basically means backbiting. He throws that in there? Backbiting? Coveting? Greed? 
He throws that in there. Getting drunk? I say that only to say it is very important for us as evangelicals to make sure that we have the vision that sees the whole range of the deeds of the flesh. It is easy to pick a couple of these out, even, even again, right, right, dealing with, uh, dealing with high school students. You know, like if I'm dealing with high school students and I'm teenagers, my, my mind's going right to fornication. Like I'm, I'm you know, what a, a youth pastor is going to, in this list, remind them about the need for sexual purity and, and hey, notice that fornication. We do not want to live in, in a state of fornication. Yeah, but, but, they, but the kids also need to hear about coveting. It's just so naturally to agree. They need to, they need to hear about gossip and to hear gossip put on the list of all the, what they and their, their young Christian minds view as sort of the really bad sins. And to hear Paul puts gossip on that list. Do you think of gossip that way? When we are wronged and our first instinct is to tell somebody else about it instead of telling the person who just offended us about it, which we all do, we all whine and gripe about what everybody's done to us or how we weren't treated fairly, or this person, you know, we do that. And Paul's like, yeah, that's on the list. We just don't think like that. We think the the big sins, okay, adultery, we get that one. Homosexuality. Paul says, such as these will not inherit the kingdom. Now, what he's talking about here is not these actions, that if you've ever committed one of these, because who in here has not committed reviling, who in here has not committed coveting? And I won't ask about the others. We can deal with that privately. <laughs> we won't ask for a show of hands. But but I got you all on coveting, so we can stop right there, okay? And I got you all on reviling, myself included. So does that mean that's it? We're all out. Because he says, these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No. Notice he puts these in in personalities, right? He, he puts them as if it's not fornication, it's fornicators. He said, well, what's the difference? Because anybody who has commits fornication is a fornicator. Yeah, but, but notice that Paul is identifying the sin almost as if it's a person. And I'm not saying this to wriggle out of something. Where we need to be convicted, let us be convicted. We ought to be convicted. When we engage in these things, we are engaging in things that Paul says, such as do these will not inherit the kingdom. So when we sin and when we commit these things, it should unsettle us badly. So I don't, I'm, I'm saying that because I do not, what I'm, what I'm, the other thing, side of what I'm saying, I do not want to give us a way to wriggle out and go, oh, so this doesn't really apply to me. Okay, okay. Let it apply to you. But let it not drive you to despair by saying, well, my goodness gracious, I, I've done that. That's it. I'm out of the kingdom. We know that's not the case because Paul comes right in the very next verse and says, and such were some of you. In some sense, such were all of you. Right? You've all, you were all down that rat hole of sin. You all lived as pagans. You were all there. We were all there such that our sin was identified with us. You know, this is, this is one of the issues. Like if you go to like, very few people say. Now, you, you will have people go to like a uh, AA meeting and the first thing you have to say is, hello, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. Okay, a person may say, I am, I'm a drunk. Okay, they, they may say that. But the, but the other ones of these, no one says, hey, 
I'm, I'm, you know, so-and-so, I'm an adulterer. I'm a fornicator. Okay, except people who are way, way down on the spectrum, you know, of, of who have just embraced it and be like, fornication's awesome and that's what I do. And Okay, but most normal people don't say, I'm a fornicator. I'm an adulterer. I'm greedy. I'm a reviler. And good, because we don't want to take our sin and so associate it with us that to know me is to know that sin. That, that sin is me. That's what I am. And I think given the text, this is what's dangerous about saying, I am a homosexual. I, because, it, again, where else do we, maybe with the, the drunkenness. We want to be careful. This is, I'm, I'm giving you this as a take on the Christian position. It's not that Christians don't wrestle with same-sex attraction. There are many Christians that wrestle with same-sex attraction and may, in fact, wrestle with that the rest of their lives. That's a reality. Just like, just like you have sins, struggles, weaknesses that you wrestle with your whole life. On this list. But the point is we wrestle with them. We don't identify with them. We don't say, well, that is what I am. I am a coveter. Now, I mean, if it's, if it's in the AA sense where it's like confessing one sin, I have done this, I own that. Okay, that's a certain path toward repentance. But when we embrace it as just, no, this is who I am. I, this, to know me is to know this identity is the dangerous position to take. And Paul says, such that was true. For some of you, all of you struggled with this. All of you were down the rat holes of sin and whatever different sin had its, its, its tangling vines around, your, around you. And such were some of you. But you, and that's why I titled the sermon, but you. This was true of you. Hey, your identity was nothing but sin. Name the sin. There's no hierarchy in that list. From covening to adultery to homosexuality to greed. It's all in there. And such were some of you, but you. What makes you different than somebody out there who's still down in that struggle? But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. And to bring it back around, that's why we don't take each other to court. That's what the pagans do. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They can't work it out. Pagans get wrapped up in their sins so much so that their sin is identified with them in their very person. It, it's like Gollum. You can't distinguish anymore. You know, he's not Smeagol anymore. He becomes Gollum. He, he, he's, his sin has so eaten him up that to know Smeagol is to know his idolatry with the ring. It just, it's now, he's a, he's a, he's a, turned in monster. But that's not you. You were filthy, but you've been washed. You've been washed clean. Oh, I had the privilege of saying this to my class the other day. We were going through Ephesians 1, just working through what it means to be in Christ, and we were talking about this, what redemption means, that you, you have forgiveness. Like you, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what on that list most touches a nerve for you. In Christ, you have been washed. Literally, all the filth of your sin has been washed away. Hence, the beautiful line from the hymn that we just sung. On that day when I'm dressed in a beauty, not my own. 
Yeah, you've been washed and clothed with the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been washed in your baptisms, representing the washing of the blood of Christ. Think of that image in Revelation when the the, the 144,000 follow the Lamb wherever he goes, wearing white robes, washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. And you're sanctified. Not only are you washed, but you are made holy before God. I know, I'm, I'm still a sinner. I still wrestle with these things. I still slide back into the ruts of sin, claw my way. I mean, this is the battle of the Christian life. But before God, I am holy because of the robe, the robe of righteousness that I wear in Christ. And as such, I am justified. God looks at Bill Spanger, he looks at you in Christ, and he says, holy, acceptable righteous and knowing that having that taken care of to know that in god's presence i am holy and acceptable and beloved before him i can now roll up my sleeves and get to war go to work against my sin i'm not trying to earn my way into heaven paul doesn't say such as do these things will not earn their way such that live in this way and identify that will not inherit it's a gift salvation is given to you And we who are in Christ are not better than them. But we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. And we have the gift of the Spirit. And so we don't need to take each other to the pagans to decide our matters. We have the Spirit. We can come to one another and we can come to the church if need be for the authority of the church and the wisdom of the church to begin to deal with these things. And we don't have to live lives that look like the pagans. We don't, we don't live in the same manner. We don't so identify with our sin that we become idolaters. Yes, we all struggle with idolatry. But we are not idolaters. We all struggle with sin in that sense. But we repent of it. We hate it. We fight it. We cut right hands off when necessary and pluck out right eyes when we have to. And we confess our sins and we run to the cross where we find cleansing and renewal. That's who we are in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our sins as we already have today, corporately and individually. Lord, who among us can escape the list that Paul lays out before us? We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we pray that you would guard us from succumbing by raising the white flag to the struggle with sin, so much so that it becomes identified with us as as Smeagol's passions and lusts for the ring became so identified with him that he became Gollum. We pray that you would guard us from that. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified in the gift of the Spirit. And so we pray that you would bless us. Help us to live lives consistent with what we know to be true. Father, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you love us even in and through our sin. Empower us now to go to war against it, we pray. For we ask in Christ's name, amen.